joining us. I'm Sarah Clark with your EFCN News Top Story. Muslims worldwide have condemned the November Mumbai shooting rampage by suspected Islamic militants as senseless terrorism. But they also find themselves on the defensive once again about bloodshed linked to their religion. Intellectuals and community leaders called for greater efforts to combat religious fanaticism. As you'll remember, over Thanksgiving weekend, 10 gunmen attacked 10 targets in the three-day assault, including a Jewish community center and luxury hotels in India's commercial hub. More than 170 people were killed. Indian police said the only surviving gunman told them he belongs to the Pakistani militant group linked to al-Qaeda. The group is seen as a creation of Pakistani intelligence to help fight India in the disputed Kashmir region. An Islamic extremist web forum, some of those praised the Mumbai attacks, including the targeting of Jews. Back in the U.S., the FBI is telling New York City commuters that al-Qaeda wants them dead. The FBI has increased security on all its transit systems in response to what they're calling a plausible but unsubstantiated report. Meanwhile, the CIA is going public with a promise al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden is still public enemy number one. Officials are reiterating their pledge to find that terrorist dead or alive. Now, there is one terrorist no longer in hiding. Reporter Jared Wilson is here with more. Jared? Sarah, that terrorist is Herod the Great. Thirty-five years after first excavating the site of Herodium, archaeologist Ehud Netzer of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem has finally found what he's been looking for, the tomb of Herod the Great, who ruled as king of Judea during Roman rule from 37 to 4 B.C. Herod the Great reigned over a territory greater than any Jewish king following Solomon's era. He is remembered for his many monumental building projects, including the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the palace at Masada, the harbor and city of Caesarea, and the sprawling palace of Herodium. Sarah, the details that are emerging from this excavation just embody what we already know about Herod. Jared, Herod is also known for his ruthlessness, is he not? I mean, I don't exactly think of him as a role model. You know, you're right. Herod's accomplishments are really overshadowed by his well-documented crimes. Herod didn't hesitate to kill anyone he thought was a threat. He executed several members of his own family, including his wife and several sons, as well as 45 members of the Jewish Religious Council in Jerusalem. Really, anyone who tried to rival, rebel, or critique him. Thanks for that report, Jared. Now, perhaps Herod's most infamous crime was his attempt to murder a child. Born in Bethlehem, a child rumored to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The discovery of Herod's sarcophagus once again opens the mystery of why some people are so bent on destroying hope. This Christmas season, a lot of people are wondering where hope has gone. In our special report, Pastor Dale Hummel answers that question. Is hope still alive? Thank you, Sarah, and welcome back to our December series, God's Editorial on the Top Stories of 2008. We start out our series by talking about the economy, Then last weekend we talked about politics, and this morning we're going to focus on terrorism, and I know as soon as I say that, some of you are thinking to yourself, what? It's the weekend before Christmas, dude. Why are you going to talk about terrorism? I want to come and have something warm and fuzzy happening here. Well, I guess we could all bury our head in the sands and pretend that everything's okay out there, but it's not. And I think we need to deal with it. And Christmas 
has some things about it that, well, involve terrorism. For instance, if you look at the Christmas story carefully, you will discover that the child Jesus was the target of a terrorist attack, that he barely escaped. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles and turn open to the Gospel of Matthew to a well-worn Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2. How many of you um, are suffering with me with sinus, cold, that kind of thing? All right? On a count of three, let's all clear our voices. <clears throat> Thank you very much. That helped me. Uh, okay. All right. Matthew chapter 2, listen to this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming in to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the, co- the country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning, and Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So our Lord Jesus escaped as a child, but there was collateral damage. There was violence, there was fear, and there certainly was threat that Herod brought there. You know, the key verse in this is verse 3, where it says that when Herod heard the news about the supposed king of the Jews being born, it says that he was disturbed, and because he was disturbed, all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. See, Herod has spent his entire career trying to earn a title and a kingdom. And through hobnobbing and uh, political maneuvering, he had managed to obtain from Rome the title king of the Jews, and he was given his kingdom, we know of today, as Israel. Now, despite the fact that Herod is known for his great building project, his engineering capacity, and his powerful rule, he was also a very evil man. What I mean by that is he had an insanely jealous heart, and he was extremely insecure. And if he thought that you were after his throne or his kingdom, if it was just a notion or a rumor, he'd have you put to death. That's why he killed his favorite wife, Mary Amney. Can you imagine not being his favorite wife? 
he had her killed because he had suspicion from others that she was in a plot to overthrow him. He had three of his sons killed because he supposed that they were after his throne. So a guy who could kill not only his his foes and his friends, but his family would have no problem calling the order to have every little boy, two years of age and under, brutally murdered in Bethlehem and the vicinity, especially if one of them was rumored to be a potential, potential king of the Jews. Now, we know that story well. We've played the parts in Christmas pageants. How many of you were wise men or women? Right? How many of you played Mary? Right? How many of you were the baby? Any babies here? When you were a baby, you were used to, Yeah, we got a few there. Okay, right? So we've all played that part, and we think we know the story. But here's the reality. There is a story behind the story. There is a reality that is taking place then and now that we've got to get a clue on. And so we're going to draw the curtains back for a minute and realize that behind Herod, who is a terrorist in the way he acts, is the father of all terrorism himself. Going on here is not just the battle of Herod to retain his throne and to kill the infant Jesus, but there's a cosmic supernatural battle taking place here. Satan is behind the scenes using Herod's pride and jealous and evil heart to try to get at the hope of the world which is resting in that child, Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible reminds us that Satan is a terrorist. Peter described him this way, 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Finish it with me. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, let's read this one aloud together. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And he launched that whole plot back in the book of Genesis. And I'd like you to turn back there with me for just a minute. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we discover Adam and Eve, God's creation. He put them in the garden, and, they, and he just simply said, you can have anything you want, but leave this one tree alone and, and honor me and obey me. Well, Satan shows up in the garden, and he utilizes the serpent, which must have been an amazing creature back in the book of Genesis. Remember, Satan was one of the created beings that God had made and had a high position in heaven from what we understand in Scripture. But Satan rebelled against God, pride filled his heart, and he wanted God's throne. And God would not share his power. And God banished him from, the, from heaven and, and from that realm where God is. And he shows up in the garden. And there he utilizes the serpent, this creature, to tantalize the woman. And she pays attention to the creature. And he proceeds to convince her and her husband to rebel against God. And we know that they rebelled. And we know sin was born into the world as a result of that. And so God came looking for the guilty parties. And he confronts them one after another. And finally, he confronts the serpent. But it's not so much the serpent he's confronting, but Satan himself. And there are two very interesting verses in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Now, here's a key verse, verse 15. I think, verse 15. Are we stuck? Okay. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I agree, I agree with Bible theologians who say that that is the first foreshadowing in the Bible 
of the cosmic and epic battle that would take place on the cross. That Satan and his, his armies, so to speak, the unseen force of the world, would come against the offspring of the woman, not just humanity, but God, man, Jesus Christ, in order to destroy the hope that was in the world. You see, Satan knew in his heart and mind that God was going to make a way to reconcile mankind back to himself. And so he stalked all of God's steps. And we know from the Bible that the, the method that God chose to use to bring man to himself was to, was to call on a man by the name of Abraham and say to him, I'm going to make you into a nation. And through your nation, all peoples are going to be blessed, Abraham. And that, of course, is the Jewish people, right? Who eventually would give birth to the Messiah. And so if you watch Satan throughout the Old Testament, he is constantly trying to deceive, discourage, and destroy the Jewish nation. Over and over and over and over again. He never stops. But God always preserves a remnant who stay faithful to him. And it all culminates in this one little girl, this teenage peasant girl living in Nazareth, who God comes in the right time at the right place, sends his angel Gabriel who says that you are going to become pregnant, though you are a virgin, the Holy Spirit will implant God in your womb, who will take on flesh, and he will be born, Emmanuel, God with us, and he is the hope of not only your people, the Jewish people, but the hope of the world. And so Satan, just as he utilized the serpent, utilizes Herod's pride and Herod's evil, jealous spirit to try to get at Jesus, but like we've already learned, Jesus escaped. But then the serpent shows up later on, and he tries to attack Jesus from a different angle. Remember the story in the wilderness during the 40 days of of our Lord's fasting in the wilderness without sleep and worn down? Satan comes to him and says, I'll give you all the kings of the world if you just bow to me. Remember, Jesus rebukes Satan after three different temptations and says, I will live by the word of God. I'm not going to live by the words and the lies that you're saying to me. And Satan leaves him, and he goes away. And Satan works with the the jealous heart of Pilate, you know, the Roman uh, governor. And then he works with the jealous hearts of the the religious leaders who have turned away from God. And he manages to, to manipulate the whole thing until finally these men put Jesus up on a cross and crucify him. And it appears, it appears that the devil has won, that he's sunk his his teeth, so to speak, into the heel of our Lord and released his venom and and Jesus is going to die. And the, with that, the hope of the world is going to die. But on the cross, Jesus spoke an interesting phrase. He said, it is finished. And when he said that, he didn't mean my life is over. He used a phrase that was used by merchants in those days to say, the debt is paid, the transaction is complete. And what he was saying to the Father was, Father, I, have, I am paying the price. I am totally committed. I am giving myself for the lost world so that they can become your adopted children. And with that, he gave up his last breath. And Satan thought he'd won, but Satan had been defeated because Jesus at that moment crushed his head and won victory for the world. Now, with that, Satan resigned. He just said, I'm beat, and I'm going to crawl in a hole someplace and let God just do his thing, right? Absolutely not. Satan is still... Satan is still looking to destroy God's people. He's still looking to destroy the Jewish people. I believe that with all my heart because they have been the seed of the Messiah. And as I understand prophecy, he's going to bring many back to himself in the end times. And he wants to destroy Gentiles, Christians, 
those who are true, sincere followers of Jesus because he wants to hurt them. He wants to keep them from letting the world know because we are God's hope transmitters, right? We are here to transmit hope to the world. He wants to shut us down and, 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 and quiet us and, and destroy us so he can have his little realm and his, and his little kingdom. See, what does all that have to do with terrorism, Dale? Well, I'm going to make a statement right now that may, um, may shock you a little bit. Maybe it won't. I believe that terrorism today, and I'm going to focus specifically on radical Islam, I believe is, is more than just a battle between human beings. I believe that behind it is a supernatural force at work. A cosmic battle. And I believe Satan is using radical Islam to destroy the Jewish people, if he can, and to destroy Christians. I really believe that. I believe there is a spiritual warfare taking place there. Look what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He said, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. Read it with me. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities, the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And what does Paul remind us there? Paul reminds us that every day we get up, especially as followers of Jesus, we are in a spiritual warfare. That there are unseen powers at work trying to destroy the work of God and the hope of the world. Now, I know that there are about 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. And the majority of them would choose and desire to live in peace. And so I am not here to... uh, degrade or in, in any way say that, that all Muslims are, are terrorists. But experts tell us that about 15 to 20% of the 1.5 billion are radical Islamists. And they have an agenda, and that agenda is to destroy Israel and to destroy America. They look at us as Christians and they see us as heretics who are, who are perverting by our beliefs the Quran and the proper understanding of Allah or God. And so the intentionality is we've got to get rid of that. We've got to deal with that. Now, 15 to 20% of about 1.5 billion is like 300 million. And so it's a serious deal out there. It's a serious issue out there. And the militants want, want to create trouble. Several days before her brutal assassination, Benazir Bhutto, the former prime minister of Pakistan, wrote these words. Listen to what she said. To provoke, she said, their intention is to provoke a clash of civilizations between the West and Islam. The great hope of the militants is a collision and explosion between the values of the West and what the extremists claim to be the values of Islam. The attacks of September 11, 2001, heralded the dream of bloody confrontation. If the fanatics and extremists prevail, then a great fitna, a disorder through schism or division would sweep the world, here lies their ultimate goal, chaos. Now, how many of you have heard of Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, right? And a lot of people laugh at him, and a lot of people mock him, and a lot of people belittle him. But I want to tell you something. That man in that small country is a force to be reckoned with. He is a part of Islam. 10% are Shiites. They make up this, this part of Islam, Shia. 
And the Shiites, uh, they believe that there is a 12th imam or, or leader who is yet to emerge on the world stage who is like an Islamic messiah. And they believe, and he believes, that the only way that the 12th imam will come and cleanse the earth of heretics is if there's chaos in the world that forces him onto the stage. And so Ahmadinejad is in pursuit of nuclear weapons, and it is his intent to do whatever he can to create world chaos economically, politically, militarily, etc., in order for, in his mind, this prophecy to take place. So these folks are serious. It's not just one or two or three. We're talking 300 million. And we're talking about schools, especially in Indonesia, as well as the Middle East, where kids, young kids and young people are being raised on this kind of hatred. A man by the name of George Asada, who's an Assyrian Christian, was a general serving under Saddam Hussein, who was able to uh, spare himself from Saddam's wrath. And after the whole Iraqi thing came down, this guy finally kind of declared who he was and what he believed. And, and he has written a few books, or I've written a book, in which he is talking to us today about the threat of, of uh, militant Islam. And I want you to listen to what he says. I want to quote this for you. He says, I'm often asked about militant Islam and the threat of global terrorism. More than once, I've been asked about the meaning of the Arabic words Fatah and Jihad. What I normally tell them is that to followers of militant brand of Islam, these doctrines express the belief that Allah has commanded them to conquer the nations of the world, both by cultural invasion and by sword. In some cases, this means moving thousands of Muslim families into a foreign land by building mosques and changing the culture from the inside out and by refusing to assimilate or adopt the beliefs or values of that nation to conquer that land for Islam, this is an invidious doctrine, but it's being carried out in some places today by the followers of this type of Islam. Now, we've all heard the word jihad, right? And the word jihad means to struggle. And in one sense, it describes the struggle of a Muslim to submit him or herself to Allah. But it's also used to describe the defense of Islam. Now, everybody has the right to defend themselves. But for the radical Islamists, the way you defend Islam is by forcing everybody to convert to Islam. Because if everybody becomes a Muslim, if everybody converts to Islam, there's no more threat. There's no more threat. And that's what their intention is. Now, here's the deal. You and I live in a nation today where we have lost conviction where we have lost a sense of stability. We live in a culture today that is into pluralism. Pluralism is like, let's all stand in a circle and sing kumbaya in our own religious language, and let's all get along together. We are into the accommodation of everyone and everything else, except, I would suggest to you, Christianity. America, founded on Christian principles, in many ways, is turning its back on Christians. And in many ways, we are we're kind of pushing Christianity aside and making it really hard for Christians to express their beliefs in the culture. If you haven't felt that, I don't know where you're living, but it's there. But it's amazing how we will accommodate everybody else. 
How we even go out of our way to try to make them feel welcome, for them to express their beliefs and their convictions, because we think, we think that if we can just hold hands and be nice to people, that eventually they, they'll, they'll chill out and, 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 and we'll all be one happy family. But not with the radical Islamists. Look what Seda goes on to say. He says, they won't be stopped by appeasement. They're not interested in political solutions. They don't want welfare. Their animosity is not caused by hunger or poverty or anything of the sort. They understand only one thing. Total and complete conquest of the West and of anyone who does not bow down to them and their dangerous and out-of-date ideology of hate and revenge. And that's what we've got to get. That's what we have to understand. That's what I hope the leaders of our nation will comprehend and understand. These folks are not willing to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. They're not ready to just, you know, let's all get along together. They have an intention. And they will compromise. They will do whatever it takes in order to move us toward them. But their goal is to coerce everyone to accept their doctrine and their belief. Say, well, is it really that hateful? Are those people really that hateful? I'm going to quote to you from a sermon given by a sheik in, in Gaza, Ibrahim Adaris. He spoke these words in a sermon that was broadcast to the entire world. Listen to what he said. With the establishment of the state of Israel, the entire Islamic nation was lost because Israel is a cancer. The Jews are a virus resembling AIDS. And it sounds like Hitler, doesn't it? From which the entire world suffers. You'll find that Jews were behind all the civil strife in this world. The Jews are behind the suffering of the nations. We, the Muslims, have ruled the world before. And by Allah, the day will come when we will rule the entire world again. The day will come when we will rule America. The day will come when we will rule Britain and the entire world except the Jews. The Jews will not enjoy a life of tranquility under our rule because they are treacherous by nature as they have been throughout history. The day will come when everything will be relieved to the Jews. Listen to Prophet Muhammad who tells you about the evil that awaits the Jews. The stones and trees will want the Muslims to finish off every Jew. You see some hatred in that? You see the evil intent in that? Now, does every Muslim believe that? No. The majority want to live in peace. But 15 to 20% of the 1.5 billion embrace that and believe that to be their cause and are pushing that as their agenda. The question becomes, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? Well, we don't respond to it by sticking our head in the sand and pretending it's going to go away. And we don't respond to it by thinking that our new president or any president from any political party is somehow going to be able to use diplomacy to talk everybody into getting along. For them, it is their life's calling. And you and I, as followers of Christ, have an insight that the rest of the people don't. We know that there's more to terrorism than just these individuals who want to strap on bombs and kill innocent men, women, and children. We know that behind it is a spiritual force. It's a dynamic warfare that's going on. And you and I, as believers, have been given the power to bring that force down. 
For our weapons are, are not like the weapons of this world, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think it is. But our, our, our weapons are supernatural. And I want to suggest to you that there are three weapons that God has given us to combat this, this warfare that's taking place in the cosmos. The first one is prayer. God has given you and I the ability to pray. And prayer is powerful when it's coming from a man or a woman or a young person who has fully yielded to God. With prayer, wars can be stopped. With prayer, walls can be broken through. With prayer, hearts and lives of the most wicked men and women can be changed. But I'm afraid in our nation today, our prayers are so weak because our lives are so unholy. And God can't use the prayers of a person who's dabbling in pornography. And God can't use the prayers of a person who's compromised in materialism. And God won't use the prayers of a person who insists on gossiping and backbiting and being jealous. And so in America today, I think Christians are so impotent because we are spiritually not right with God. My hope and prayer is the stuff that's going on in our culture right now is going to shake us back so that God can use us to bring about an awakening, a spiritual awakening in our nation, like has happened on at least two other occasions, that will truly be transforming. That's the hope. That's our potential. The second weapon, if you want to use it that way, that God's given us is his word, folks, is his word. My great fear today is that many of us don't know what we believe. And that scares me. Because if I don't know what I believe, I'm susceptible to what everybody else may believe and preach at me. And Islam is, is not embarrassed or afraid to preach their beliefs. In fact, someone a while back came up to me and handed me a Quran here at our church. And they said, this was left at my door the other day. How many of you have received a Quran? Look at the hands that just went up. They're not afraid to propagate what they believe. Now imagine a young person especially getting a hold of a Quran. And you know, they're, they're, not, they're, they're wise. They know how to get people to feel a part of the system. We all want to belong. We want to be a part of it. If I don't know what I believe, I could easily fall victim to them convincing me that Allah is the same God that the Christians worship. And that argument is out there. And I'm here to tell you that Allah and Jehovah of the Bible are not the same. They couldn't be further apart. They couldn't be further apart. Allah is not personable, and Allah is unstable and unpredictable and vengeful. So different from Jehovah, the God of the Bible. They believe that the Quran, which was only written after Muhammad supposedly received his revelations to the angel Gabriel back in about 620 A.D. or so, they believe that the Quran is the mother of all other books and that the Bible is secondary to the Quran. Folks, the Bible is written over 1,400 years by 40 different authors. And if you read the Bible, you'll find continuity. It's one story of how God pursues mankind from the garden to bring him back to himself. You read the Quran, it is full of contradictions. You read the Quran, it makes no sense. You read the Quran in some places, and it's like someone who wasn't quite all there wrote it. It makes no sense at all. And by the way, if I were to speak that in some countries today, I would be killed on the spot. You need to know what you believe, and you have to be here next weekend, all right? You've got to be here next weekend for the final message when I talk about navigating these confusing times. You've got to know what you believe, or you are susceptible, or you're in a dangerous place. But when I know what I believe, when I know what the Word of God says, not only can I pray, but I can pray God's Word. And the Bible says that the Word of God is His dunamis, it's His dynamite, and it's His power, and it changes hearts and it changes lives. The third thing that God's given us is our witness, is our witness. 
God wants us to witness with our lives how we live our lives. He wants us to witness with our words. You know, there are many, many Muslims right now throughout the world that don't like what they see happening. And they are more open now to knowing about who Jesus Christ is than any other time. And we read, and I have talked to the people who know these people in Bethlehem and in Jericho of all places and in Afghanistan and in Egypt. We know that Jesus is, is revealing himself to Muslims in dreams and they are converting. And there is a movement among Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I. You and I can't go hide. You and I need to befriend Muslims. You and I need to share hope with them and encouragement with them. You and I need to be willing to show God's love toward them. You and I need to be able to dialogue with them about what the truth is. That's how we turn the world around. That's how we change this whole thing. By recognizing that it's a a spiritual battle as much as it is a, a physical battle. We're not running and hiding, but realizing that God has given us the capacity through prayer, through the power of his word, and the power of our witness to affect and change lives. So I see that, I see there's tremendous hope available, but if we'll just trust in Christ. But as we, as we end this message for a minute, I don't want you to walk out of here feeling down and discouraged and negative. The final chapter for this world is not Islam. The final chapter for this world is the promise that the baby who came in a manger as a lamb is going to come back someday as a what? As a lion. And the promise we have from God's word is that even though we may be going through troubled times right now, and even though we may be facing certain things that are rather fearful, the reality is we know how the story ends. And the story ends with God overruling. The story ends with God having the ultimate victory and Satan being banished and all evil being set aside and the truth being set up as a standard and God reigning forever and ever and us reigning with him. And it's a beautiful picture of the future. And this morning, this morning I want us to, I want us to end with a picture of the future. I want us to end with some goosebumps you know, on our back as we think about the day that is coming that we're all going to be a part of. It's found in the book of Revelation. And I want you to stand with me as we read this. And I just want you to think about the future and the hope that's going to be ours someday as we travel through this valley we're in right now. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The older things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. To thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy in this scroll. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will get to everyone according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that may go through the gates into the city. Outside are dogs, those who practice magic arts, and sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches, the church in Naperville. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let those who hear say, come. Let those who are thirsty come. Let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. God bless you.